0: You don't know.
1: And blinking stepped into no. the sun.
0: It's the sun high <laughs> over sapphire sky. Da, 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 da. <laughs> it's the circle of life. Moon and it moves the soil.
1: Hello, welcome to the Side of History podcast, or the Lion King podcast.
0: No, don't keep it in. Don't do that. Don't keep that in. That's not good.
1: (laughs) My name is Nick.
0: My name is Mika.
1: And this is a music history podcast where I am trying to teach Mika all about music history, and she does not care about music history.
0: I'm just trying to make the mic not move.
1: That is a noble goal. Okay, well, this is going to be a long episode. So I'm not going to do the normal spiel.
0: The normal spiel that takes 2 seconds that's just follow us on social media and sometimes we post. Okay, well if you're just going to say the underscore it anyway. on Twitter. <laughs> there you go. Time there you go.
1: No, I do more. But anyway, I'm just going to get right into me the host now.
0: Mika is the host now. Um we're doing another anti-plug today and that is allergies. Allergies is annoying. My eyes have been swollen for over a week. I cannot wear mascara.
1: Allergies is the plural, right? Yeah. Okay. You said allergies is annoying, and I was like, is that right? But it's not.
0: You know that I really care a lot about grammar.
1: I know, I but I was just c- confused for a second. That's Or else I would have let it go. Whatever.
0: You can't just let it go. Hey, you're really cute. I would like to plug you <laughs> and your hair. I think your hair is cute, even though you cut it off today.
1: I did it all by myself.
0: You just took some scissors and t-
1: Yep, put a bowl on my head and cut around it.
0: Yep. It's it's very effective. You look really great. <laughs> very trendy actually.
1: Anything else? No. Wow, that was fast. Mika and only are the host now?
0: Mika wants to talk about Queen. Okay,
1: well, first you want to tell us what we talked about last episode, our first seventies episode.
0: Arena rock. Do you want to where they play rock music in arenas? (laughs) Yes,
1: slightly more to it than that, but that's the gist. It's just it's music that's made to be played in arena. Very like power chords, high soaring vocals, driving rhythms, that kind of stuff.
0: I just don't understand it as like a genre because you can play anything you want in an arena.
1: Yeah, but not all music is written and created to be played and sound good in an arena.
0: Were you there when they made it? Was it was that their end goal or did they just happen to be playing in arenas when they played their songs?
1: It doesn't really matter what their goal was If they created a new genre by doing it Like the people who created blues Might not have been like I am going to create A new genre of music They just started playing music they wanted to play That fit the environment And then a new genre came about I'm but just like, saying like, like, If it's
0: made to be played in arenas they, Maybe they didn't make it to be played in arenas yeah. I have an issue with the definition
1: I'm aware of that I, I think you are wrong don't like it But I just like think like Olivia Rodrigo's Sour album, clearly not written with like the idea of I'm going to play this in arenas. Like that's not the point of it.
0: Maybe that's not the point of the other stuff.
1: Maybe not, but it fits it.
0: Okay. well, So does Sour fit in in an arena?
1: It doesn't. Listen, you
0: haven't heard thousands of people singing, I know you got deja vu. in an arena because i bet that that's very powerful
1: i bet that you also cannot hear olivia singing it with that many people and that's part of why arena rock is arena rock because it has very soaring vocals that can be heard in the back of the room over thousands and thousands of cheering fans
0: you don't think that that counts as soaring
1: i don't think it counts as arena rock soaring i don't
0: think that sour (laughs) is rock
1: okay that's my genre that's why arena rock is a different genre than i do not
0: establish it as a genre i disagree whatever give me queen give me queen
1: what do you already know about queen
0: i don't know i feel like anything i say is going to be dumb i know some things
1: Okay, just give it a shot. See what you I don't want you
0: know. to. I'm scared. People like <laughs> mean, They might judge me.
1: People like all the bands we've talked about.
0: I know, but I don't know. I feel like I should know more about them. I don't know. I'm scared. I don't want to. It's stage fright. Okay.
1: Do you know any of the band members?
0: I know Freddie. I don't know any of the other people's names off the top of my head.
1: Okay. Well, I think this is going to be another one where we go back in time a little bit to talk about different... Heck yeah. ...different members of the band. So we're starting in 1947, when Brian May was born near London, England.
0: I have heard of Brian.
1: Cool. While in school, he built his own guitar and formed his first band, which he called 1984. Did you
0: say he built his own guitar? Yes. Huh.
1: Cool. He called his band 1984, named after the George Orwell novel... And that band was with a friend of his named Tim Staffel. Tim and Brian went to the same school, but they met at a concert. The band, 1984, was a blues rock band they formed with a couple other local friends. Brian was actually a really good student. He tested well in applied mathematics and physics, which you might guess, seeing as he built his own guitar. I like him. In 1968, he graduated with honors with a degree in physics. Hell yeah. He was granted a position with an observatory to work under a very prominent astronomer and physicist.
0: That's so cool.
1: But he turned that down to focus on his music.
0: I like this dude.
1: Because that position would take him, I think, like to the northeast of England, which was far away from like the music scene happening. So it was like impossible for him to do both. So he chose music instead. 1984 broke up long before he graduated, but Brian and Tim had started a different band called Smile.
0: He's so cute. Smile, formed in
1: 1968, featured Brian May on guitar, Tim Staffel on vocals. They placed an advertisement in a college notice board for a Ginger Baker-type drummer.
0: I need the definition on that.
1: Ginger Baker was the drummer for the band Cream that we talked about during (sighs) metal, maybe? Okay. You liked Cream.
0: I did like Cream.
1: So they're looking for a Ginger Baker type drummer. So kind of more, more metal, more metal, a little bit harder, more progressive rock type drummer. I like it. A guy named Roger Taylor Applied. Okay, going back in time.
0: <laughs> Roger was born in Norfolk
1: in 1949. He, fir- he formed his first band when he was seven years old and called it the Bubbling Over Boys.
0: I like it. For seven, that's pretty great and creative. (laughs) I like it.
1: Bubbling over is one word, too.
0: As it should be. Okay.
1: Roger played the ukulele in that band.
0: Cute, because, well, I was going to say, what else can you play as a seven-year-old? But there's lots of seven-year-olds more musically talented than I am. Uh,
1: He originally learned how to play the guitar, but he switched to drums when he realized that he had more of an aptitude for it. When he was fifteen, he joined a semi-professional band called The Reaction. He went to London to study dentistry, but got bored of that and eventually earned a degree in biology. Okay. Some pretty like smart, good students in this band so far. This a little is bit a different. <laughs> a little bit different than other ones. Okay, we're going back to to Brian May. <laughs> we're not going back in time. We're just switching over.
0: Well, we were here in two thousand twenty. 2022 yes okay and now we're going back to 1960 something
1: okay so brian's original goal with his band smile was to be in a band that could actually write their own songs instead of just a cover band which they did about nine of them before tim staffel the vocalist quit the band
0: what did he quit for
1: he thought his R and B style clashed with the other more blues rock style of the other guys, and he was frustrated with their lack of success. Alright. So he started another band called Humpy Bong.
0: Worse. <laughs> Bad.
1: With the with a drummer who originally played with the Bee Gees, and he left Smile without a singer.
0: I that kind of band name is like too. It's just it's a little bit
1: too it's provocative
0: bit, it's not too provocative i'm off provocation you can quote me <laughs> it's two i'm 11 okay it's 211 11 year old like okay. separate good mushed together bad
1: so you would want to listen to a band called humpy yes or bong
0: yeah i think those <laughs> By themselves are better band names than shoved together. Okay. Humpy Bong is like a 12-year-old's a username while they're playing freaking Call of Duty. Like, I'm sorry. It just okay. is. <laughs> That's fair.
1: So while attending college in London for graphic design, Tim, the former vocalist who had now left, had met a young man from Zanzibar named Farouk Bulsara. You tracking? Did you hear what I said? Zanzibar. Yep. Farouk, Where's Bulsara. Where's Zanzibar? It's a little island off Western India? I don't know.
0: Tell us where Zanzibar is. Or Me or the I people? I can Google. I think that I have learned that I shouldn't just ask people to tell me things that I can Google. <laughs>
1: it's an island in the Indian Ocean lying 22 miles off the coast of East Central Africa. So it's in between India and Africa. Cool. Okay. So Farouk was a huge fan of Smile. So when Tim left, Brian and Roger immediately went to him and offered to let him in the band. Okay, back in time. And I hope I'm saying this name right. Farouk, Farouk. It's F-A-R-R-O-K-H. Huh. I feel like it's Farouk, but I don't know.
0: F-A-R-R-O-K-H. K-H. Pronunciation. The following pronunciation. No. By- I don't. <laughs> stop. We don't need an ad. We just need. If they're going to pay us for
1: it, I'll take it. Farouk. 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 Okay
0: shut up
1: <laughs> okay so he was born in zanzibar in 1946 to parents who were part of the Parsi community of western india since zanzibar was a british protectorate he, he was technically a british citizen most of his childhood was spent in india where he started to learn the piano from relatives while in india at the age of 12 he started a band called the hectics that played rock and roll covering artists like little richard
0: I'm sorry, did you say when he was 12? Yes. Okay, so that's a better band name (laughs) coming from a literal 12 year old. I
1: mean, we already had it. We had the Bubbling Over Boys. Bubbling Over Boys is great. (laughs) And that was from a seven year old. So they're covering artists like Little Richard, probably people like Elvis. I don't know if they had, they probably had. Oh, what's his name? Father of rock Chuck Berry, they probably had Chuck Berry. One of his bandmates said, "Quote: The only music he listened to and played was Western pop music." End quote. It was while he was in that band that he started to call himself Freddie, probably picking up on the Western influences. In 1964, Freddie's family fled Zanzibar to escape the violent revolution against the Sultan there. They immigrated to England. Freddie eventually went to school and graduated with a degree in graphic design in 1969. After graduation, he joined a couple of different bands and sold scarves and clothes with Roger, who was the drummer, Roger Taylor. Roger said, quote, Back then, I didn't really know him as a singer. He was just my mate, my crazy mate. If there was fun to be had, Fred and, Freddie and I were usually involved, end quote.
0: Good kind of people. <laughs>
1: People generally said he was very quiet and shy, but obviously had a huge interest in music. In 1970, he finally joined Brian and Roger in their band Smile, but he wanted to change the name. He came up with Queen. The rest of the group didn't like it, but he said, quote, It's very regal, obviously, and it sounds splendid. It's a strong name, very universal and immediate. I was certainly aware of the gay connotations, but that was just one facet of it, end quote. I love it at the same time
0: smart person
1: at the same time he legally changed his last name to mercury taking it from a line in a song that he had written <laughs> okay so now we have Brian May, Roger Taylor and Freddie Mercury and the newly christened Queen I love it I'm pretty sure there was four of them though so I don't know where the other one comes in yep there oh wrong. okay we're about to get there okay on July 18th, 1970, they played their first show as Queen in London They primarily played covers with a few of the old smile songs thrown in. These early gigs attracted the attention of a producer, but he didn't think they had the right bassist. Their bassist left, and they tried a few different ones before landing on John Deacon. Going back in time. John was born in 1951 in Leicester. He was heavily interested in electronics from an early age and spent a lot of time building little gadgets.
0: That's just cute.
1: Yeah. He formed his first band, The Opposition, at the age of 14.
0: Good. Good (laughs) names here. There is a clear wink link. Wink wink, wink, link. Weak link. Wink link.
1: And the clear weak link is not in the band. So Good.
0: (laughs) See, I wouldn't expect there to be that type of buffoonery (laughs) from artists and apparently technical artists.
1: Yeah. He eventually would leave that band in 1969 to pursue an education in electronics in London. While studying, he missed music and wanted to join another band. He saw Queen perform, but wasn't really all that impressed. <laughs> so he formed his own band called Deacon, which played like two shows. which is just his last name too, so I don't know how much credit we can give him for that band name. In 1971, he met Brian and Roger at a disco. Nice. They told him they were in a band that just lost his bassist, so he auditioned and became the last member of Queen.
0: That's so funny that, like, he didn't put it together. Yeah.
1: On July 2nd, 1971, they played their first show with that lineup, which is considered the classic Queen lineup.
0: July 2nd, 1970.
1: Do you remember the band members?
0: Brian, Roger, Freddie, and... I don't remember this guy's name.
1: John. It's okay. Everyone forgets John.
0: You forgot John. You're like a swither for people. I wrote this a long time ago.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't remember any of their names. Around this time, Freddie designed the band's logo based on characters for their Zodiac signs. So it has two lions for John and Roger, a crab for Brian, and fairies for Freddie.
0: I did not know that.
1: I didn't either. They recorded a few different songs as a demo tape and tried to find a label. Charisma Records offered them a contract, but they turned it down because the terms weren't what they wanted. Which is like wild that like a new debut band would just turn down their first contract. That doesn't happen a lot.
0: That is really crazy.
1: But mostly, they spent the next two years rehearsing a lot. They didn't play a ton of gigs. They didn't record much. They just worked hard at getting better, which is what you should do.
0: Well, no, you said you should play a lot of gigs, too. Either way. Around your people.
1: Either way. You should You should have, like, your Beatles Germany era, era where you're just playing a ton, whether that's in local gigs or just with each other in rehearsal studios. I don't care. Just play a bunch. That's how you get better. I would prefer in front of people, but, you know, whatever.
0: And all of your artistic prowess. Sure. Musical artistic prowess. Yes.
1: In 1972, they played a gig at Bedford College to six people. Nice. Imagine being one of those six people.
0: That'd be pretty cool. They were
1: like, I saw Queen (laughs) with five other people. They had a strange deal with a studio that was branching out into artist management. So they weren't signed to a label, but they were managed by the studio. Part of the deal meant that they could use the high-tech studio, but only when the signed bands didn't need it so they normally so they normally played in the studios from 3 to 7 a.m. They used that studio time to record their first album. In 1973, that album, which was simply called Queen, was released through Elektra Records. Good was,
0: job, Elektra.
1: It was kind of a straight metal album that drew comparisons to Led Zeppelin, which I feel like most British rock bands at that time were probably being compared to Led Zeppelin. Sure. Just the same as like the other ones were compared to the Beatles like five years earlier some critics really loved it but it didn't really do too much commercially they had high hopes for the single called Keep Yourself Alive but it didn't chart and didn't do well though now it is listed as number 31 on Rolling Stone's list of greatest songs of all time nice here is the song called Keep Yourself Alive
0: yes What's with this part?
1: Is it the fairies?
0: No, the fairies down there. I don't know. It's like that. Let us know if you know why there's like a... I don't know. Dragon. But it's not a dragon. It's not like seven. At the top of the logo. Do you know what that is? So cool. Just
1: not one that most people probably think of. Good ones. All right, let's keep yourself alive. Also, I don't think I included it in here, but it's interesting to note that, like, Freddy's mouth, like, it looks kind of weird, right?
0: Right. No, it's not.
1: Well, he was born with, I think, extra teeth in the back of his mouth, and it, like, push things forward or something and even when they were super famous he refused to get it fixed because he thought it contributed to his sound so he wouldn't get anything fixed
0: yeah his mouth is iconic
1: yeah but it also made him very self-conscious and he didn't smile a lot without like covering it so they started to record their second album using actual normal studio hours this time and started to tour they began to build their own following they played a show in australia and they were booed and jeered
0: Boo, Australia.
1: So Freddie said while they were leaving that the next time they played Australia, they'd be the biggest band in the world.
0: Damn. <laughs> I want to have that confidence. Yeah, that's
1: calling your shot right there.
0: I mean, but like, it's crazy because like he, didn't, yeah. he did have that confidence and he didn't. It's just wild. In
1: 1974, before the release of their second album, they played a show called Top of the Pops, where they performed their upcoming single. Their performance was a smash success. Do you know anything about Top of the Pops? No. It's, it's a very big like British show. Like it's just a, a top of the pop charts. Like the big bands would come oh. on and lip sync to their songs basically.
0: Wow, that's wild. <laughs> I've never heard of anyone doing that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the single rocketed into the top 10 and set the stage for their next album called Queen 2 to be a success. Good. It ended up reaching number five in the charts. Following the release, they embarked on their first American tour as a supporting act, and based largely on the back of their performances, the album climbed into the top fifty of the American charts.
0: Who did they supporting act?
1: I don't know. Probably That's other like progressive rock bands.
0: Insane.
1: Maybe like Cream, maybe. They were on Cream, I
0: think. They were?
1: They were on like Cream's farewell tour. Maybe it wasn't maybe it was someone else. That's I don't so remember. Cool. But here is that top of the pops. Uh, performance
0: oh heck yeah
1: Seven Seas of Rye. A month into their first U.S. tour in 1974, Brian collapsed on stage.
0: Whoa. Why? What happened?
1: The band thought he had food poisoning since he wasn't feeling well before the show. So they kept on with the tour. But then a few days later, he developed jaundice and was diagnosed with hepatitis. Oh. Days after his collapse, he was so sick that he could barely stand up. So he was flown back home.
0: Holy cow.
1: I saw rumors that he got hepatitis from a contaminated needle and almost had to have his arm amputated. But I don't know if that's true.
0: I feel like that would be a very easy thing to just say, especially yeah. for the time.
1: Yeah. It's
0: plausible.
1: Either way, he was off the tour and the rest of the band. Wait.
0: Uh, out of the band.
1: Oh, sorry. You're fired. <laughs> He was off the tour, and the rest of the band and anyone else that he came into contact with had to be isolated. So the tour was canceled. Brian was able to return midway through the recording of their third album. So he was out for a while. That sucks. The album, that album that we just mentioned, released in November of 1974, was their second album of that year. And it reached number two in the charts in the single... Hmm. And the single, Killer Queen also reached number two. As it should. It also managed to enter the American charts. Based off the strength of that album, they embarked on a massive world tour, going back to America and going to Japan and all over Europe. Cool. Freddie wrote Killer Queen about a prostitute, and he played a grand piano on the recording. It features a ton of different musical styles and influences all on one song. It features elaborate vocal harmonies, which was typical of Queen's music.
0: That is just one of my favorite things about them mm-hmm. and about him. Is It's mm-hmm. just like a conglomeration of all of the best stuff. He's just good. It's just cool.
1: <laughs> it was their breakthrough hit. Freddie said of the song, quote, it's about a high class call girl. I'm trying to say that classy people can be whores as well. That's what the song is about, though I would prefer people to put their interpretation upon it to read into it what they like, end quote.
0: I get what he's saying, (laughs) and I know, well, I don't know, but I feel like a better way to put it would be whores can be classy and classy, like, I don't, well, no, because then you're calling someone just a whore is like their essence. I don't know. People can be classy whores.
1: Brian said that Killer Queen was the turning point it was the song that best summed up our kind of music and a big hit and we desperately needed it as a mark of something successful happening for us i was always very happy with this song the whole album was made in a very craftsman like manner i still enjoy listening to it because there's a lot to listen to but it never gets cluttered there's always space for all the little ideas to come through They're End quote. So smart he also described hearing freddie play it for the first time while he was very sick and being sad that he couldn't participate in creating something so great oh. But they left him room to do his own guitar solo in the recording.
0: That's nice. Here is Killer Queen. Yeah. She keeps some O Shandel in her pretty cabinet. Let the meet cake, she says. Just like Maria Antoinette, A building, a remedy for Christian.
1: Killer Queen this off the top of the pops by the way
0: I see. and it makes it
1: very clear that they're lip syncing because they can't do those vocal effects <laughs> <laughs> that's, so All right, that's killer queen
0: so good
1: In 1975, they went on a headline tour with upgraded light riggings and stage theatrics. It was the start (laughs) of the arena shows that they would become known for. They were met by thousands of screaming fans everywhere they played. However, they were all basically still living in poverty. They were tied to their original deal with that old studio we talked about and earning next to no money. After a bit of a legal battle... They got out of that deal and signed with Elton John's manager who told them, quote, I'll take care of the business. You make the best record you can, end quote.
0: And then came Bohemian Rhapsody.
1: (laughs) Which is like, that's ideal. Like every manager should say that to their client. Like that's exactly what it should be.
0: He was practiced in it.
1: Yeah, he knew what he was doing. (laughs) And they took him up on that. Their fourth album, called Night at the Opera, at the time was the most expensive album ever produced. Costing about $40,000, which is $211,000 today. It used three different studios. The album featured a variety of different styles and experiments with the top recording technology of the day. Freddie took pieces of songs that he had written in college and formed formed them together to create the most enduring single in their trademark song, Bohemian Rhapsody. He played the song through on piano for the producer first, pausing to say, quote, this is where the opera section comes in. I love it (laughs) so much. During the recording, the rest of the band had trouble seeing how it would all fit together, which I think is fair. (laughs) (laughs) Reportedly, over 180 overdubs were used for the one track to the point where the original master tape wore dangerously thin.
0: I love it. I love it so much.
1: The producer said, quote, Bohemian Rhapsody was totally insane, but we enjoyed every minute of it. It was basically a joke, but a successful joke. We had to record it in three separate units. We did the whole beginning bit, then the whole middle bit, and then the whole end. It was complete madness. Gosh. The middle part started off being just a couple of seconds, but Freddie kept coming <laughs> in with more Galileos, and we kept on adding <laughs> to the opera section, and it just got bigger and bigger. We never stopped laughing. End quote iconic to support the song, Queen shot one of the first conceptual music videos. <laughs> the work paid off, and the song spent nine weeks at number one, breaking the record for the longest streak at number one.
0: I can't believe it was only nine weeks
1: and it like at this time
0: down. we have like number one's last for a yeah. jazz, and there's so much more like music yeah. being produced, like it's wild.
1: Yeah, it it's always surprises me how like hard it is back in this time for artists to even get a number 1, let alone spend 9 weeks there. It's like it's, Yeah. Like I Elton John took forever to get a number 1, and he had so many hits. They were just like hit number 2 or number 3, and like it was so hard for him to get a number 1.
0: It's just a different way of music being marketed and played, I guess. No. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I no don't know.
1: Idea. Also, the music video, it's like, I mean, you've probably seen this where their faces are in like black. It's like that was what their first album's cover art looked like was Mm -hmm. their silhouettes. So they were just kind of like took that into the video. Mm. In 1976, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys said that the song was, quote, the most competitive thing that's come along in ages. Mm. And it was a fulfillment and an answer to a teenage prayer, artistic pop music. It eventually became the UK's third best-selling single of all time. It's credited with almost creating the music video format. It has been streamed or downloaded over 1.6 billion times, making it the most streamed song from the 20th century. And here is the Bohemian Rhapsody video. Is this just
0: bad to see? I want to watch the whole
1: thing. We're not going to watch the whole thing. I want to watch the whole thing. I'm not messing with that copyright.
0: Well, you don't have to give them the whole thing.
1: (laughs) Even just that is like. Yeah.
0: That's Brian. Mm hmm.
1: That's John. That's Roger.
0: I like <laughs> Anywhere the
1: wind blows doesn't really matter to me. To me.
0: Mama bum, 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 just bum, killed bum. a man. Bum, 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 bum. 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 that cat eye. You want to know, like, the number one thing that I, maybe not the number one, but the thing that I think about most often that I regret from high school? What? Singing some dumb, awful song, because no one taught me how to audition, My time to gone. audition for acapella. Not that I was very good, but still, I could have done it, and I didn't do it, the and then they got to sing the acapella version of this over and over and over and over <laughs> again, and it was phenomenal. All
1: right, that's Bohemian Rhapsody, at least the first section of it. That album cemented them as superstars, but they didn't slow down. They played a free show in Hyde Park that broke attendance records. About 200,000 people showed up. So cool. They set off on tours of America, Japan, Europe, and Australia. They came Suck back. Suck it,
0: Australia.
1: <laughs> all four of their albums were in the top 20 in 1976, which was the first time that's ever happened. That's so cool. In all of these times where I'm going to say they like broke a record, this is post Beatles. So that's insane. Mm. <laughs> it's very difficult to break a record set by the Beatles. Yeah. And the Beatles didn't even have their all, like four albums in the top 20 at the same time. In 1976, they released their single, Somebody to Love, which was another number one, and it set the stage for their next album, which was essentially a scaled-down version of Night at the Opera, and it also reached number one. So good. The band's sixth studio album, News of the World, released in 1977 and is arguably their most successful. It went four times platinum in America and two times platinum in the UK. The album featured many songs seemingly written to be played live and sold out arenas, like We Will Rock You and We Are The Champions. They continued to sell out arenas all over the world when they toured in support of that album. It was also around this time that Freddie started to tell people about his sexuality. Well, sort of. He was in a long-term relationship with a girl named Mary... I think it's Austin, and I think I misspelled that in the script mary austin whom he met through brian may they started dating before queen was even a thing and by the mid-1970s he started started an affair with david minns and told mary about his sexuality in 1976 which ended their relationship but they always stayed great friends
0: i think that was cool
1: Mm -hmm. i think he told her he was bisexual at this point though in 1985, Freddie said about Mary, quote, "...all my lovers ask me why they couldn't replace Mary, but it's simply impossible. The only friend I've got is Mary, and I don't want anybody else." End quote. People have gone back and forth on whether or not Freddie was open about his sexuality. Some people said his stage presence was openly and proudly gay, while others noted that he always kept his distance from his boyfriends and would never ally himself with LGBT causes.
0: Because that's scary.
1: Yeah. Either way, I'm sure it was a very, very difficult issue to navigate, especially at that time. Like, um, it's hard now, but especially at that time, it I would mean, have been that's, really difficult. That
0: spotlight, that time, I don't know. Like
1: yeah. Uh... In 1978, Queen continued their crazy success with another album called Jazz. The single from that album also became an international hit. Here is that single called oh, "Fat Bottom hey, Girls." Hey. It was one of the first Queen songs I ever heard. fat bottom girl (sighs) they started the 80s on top of the world they were probably the biggest band in the world at that time thanks to another one bites the dust their next album in 1980 was also a massive success in 1981 they released under pressure with david bowie which helped them uh, compete helped them compete with that like new wave style of music that was happening in the early 80s after a tour of Japan in 1982, they decided that they needed some time off. They'd been going at a ridiculous pace for about 10 years. Brian later said, quote, we hated each other for a while. Several members of the band pursued side projects for a while, but they got back together after nine months to start recording again. Which is like not a lot of time off after 10 years of like the most ridiculous mm-hmm. schedule.
0: Like, I'm sure they hated each other, but they also like... Yeah. Th- that you just can't do that if you're not passionate about like what you're doing and in extension than each other
1: yeah i think there was also some controversy about Freddie's solo project i don't like he got a lot of money to do a solo project and he's the one who wanted the hiatus i don't know i saw that in like the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. So I don't know how accurate it is, but it was in there.
0: Because you just recently watched that, I right? watched
1: it literally the night I finished writing this episode. It was on TV, and I was like, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> just started so watching funny. it. So funny. They released a video for the song I Want to Break Free that was a parody of a popular British show, and it featured the band Cross Dressing. As you might expect, it was highly controversial and even banned from MTV. <laughs> The idea came from Roger's girlfriend. Roger said, quote, We had done some really serious epic videos in the past, and we just thought we'd have some fun. We wanted people to know that we didn't take ourselves too seriously, that we could still laugh at ourselves, and I think we proved that. Quote. And apparently, Freddie really didn't want to do it, and it was hard to get him out of the dressing room.
0: Oh, I imagine that that is also tied up in all of the yeah, stuff I'm going sure. around about his sexuality. Like, it's an easy thing for... I guess I shouldn't assume, but like a person who is very confident and comfortable in their heteronormative sexuality to be like, ha ha, look at me, I'm in a dress. And then you yeah. start to put a queer person in that situation. And it's like, this is not silly, funny. Because mm-hmm. yeah. it's not, it's not just like a joke to so many people. It's just a bummer.
1: Well, here's I want to break free.
0: Curlers are a joke though. (laughs) I'm <laughs>
1: That's why that's I Want to Break Free.
0: I love it. I love it so much. Around
1: 1984, they started to slow down a bit. They released two more albums that were more rock albums and were only minor or moderate hits, which for any other band is still good, especially 10 years on, but for them is a massive letdown. Yeah,
0: moderate hits? Are you kidding me?
1: (laughs) They started to play different markets and they built a large fan base in Latin America and Africa. In 1985, an event called Live Aid was organized to help raise funds to support those affected by the severe famine in Ethiopia. Mm. It was held simultaneously in London and Philadelphia, and it was billed as a global jukebox. It was one of the largest TV broadcasts of all time, with an estimated viewership of 1.9 billion people in 150 countries, which was about 40% of the world's population. According to many of the artists who played it, of which there were a ton, Queen was the highlight of the event. Mm-hmm. Backstage, Roger Walters, who was a founding member of Pink Floyd, said, quote, everybody's been buzzing about Queen that I've run <laughs> into. They had everybody completely spellbound, End quote. In 2005, an industry poll ranked their performance as the greatest rock performance of all time.
0: That's so cool. Uh,
1: Roger Taylor called it a shot to the arm. In 1986, Freddie said, quote, what?
0: what? That's a weird thing to call something. That doesn't make sense to me. Well,
1: we're, listen to Freddie's quote and maybe a little bit more. Okay. Freddie said, quote, from our perspective, the fact that Live Aid happened when it did was really lucky. It came out of nowhere to save us. For sure, that was a turning point. Maybe you could say that in the history of Queen, it was a really special moment. Because they were like floundering a little bit before it and then... Live Aid happened and then they were back on top So that's what Roger meant by a shot to the arm Like it was a, a wake up Like a adrenaline shot
0: I was thinking like A vaccine Oh no <laughs> <laughs> Which would save you too
1: <laughs> The performance gave the band new life And a massive bump in record sales They followed it up with a successful album In the UK that only hit number 46 In the US mm-hmm. Here's a little bit of that Live Aid performance Yeah. Cool.
0: Oh, so this is what we see the videos from.
1: Yeah, it's like iconic. I'm trying to think of a more iconic performance. I think like the Beatles' first time playing the Ed Sullivan show is up there. Woodstock as a whole is probably the thing.
0: So is this the justification of the life, <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right, that's a little bit of We Will Rock You at Live Aid.
0: Amazing.
1: The, their whole set was incredible. Their 14th studio album in 1991, called Innuendo, was even more successful, breaking the top 30 in the U.S. and hitting number one in the U.K. However, by this point, the band had drastically scaled back its activity and that led many to question Freddie's health. Although the public didn't know it, Freddie had started exhibiting symptoms of AIDS as early as 1982. His partner, Jim Hutton, has said that Freddie tested positive for AIDS in 1987, which was right around the time that Freddie claimed in an interview that he had tested negative.
0: You don't test positive for AIDS.
1: Well, how do you confirm test you have positive
0: it? for HIV.
1: Okay, whatever. Same thing. Okay. In my mind. Okay. Freddie started to look increasingly gaunt over the next few years, so the British press pursued the rumors. When Queen stopped touring, it just poured fuel on the fire. Also, Freddie's ex-lovers started to talk to the press about the whole situation. In February of 1990, Freddie, Freddie made his last appearance on stage when he and the rest of the band accepted an award for outstanding contribution to music. Freddie kept denying the whole AIDS rumors, but Brian later admitted that he had told the band about his condition much earlier. In 1991, they filmed a video for These Are the Days of Our Lives, which would be the last time Freddie ever appeared on camera. <sighs> Freddie didn't want to tell people because he didn't want them affected by it. Apparently, he told his friends, quote, I don't want to put any burden on other people by telling them my tragedy, end quote. Brian said that when they were recording the last album, Freddie would come in when he could for an hour or two to record his parts. Brian said, quote, he just kept saying, write me more, write me stuff. I want to just sing this and do it, and when I am gone, you can finish it off. He had no fear, really, end quote. After finishing the album, Freddie went back home, and his health steadily declined. His ex-girlfriend, Mary, was with him and cared for him a lot during this time. He eventually lost his eyesight and couldn't get out of bed. He chose to hasten his death by refusing any medication other than painkillers. On November 22nd, 1991, Freddie called their manager to prepare a public statement. It, wo- it It read quote: "Following the enormous conjecture in the press over the last two weeks, I wish to confirm that I had been tested HIV positive and have AIDS. I felt it correct to keep this information private to date, to protect the privacy of those around me. However, the time has come now for my friends for my friends and fans around the world to know the truth. And I hope that everyone will join with me, my doctors, and all those worldwide in the fight against this terrible disease. My privacy has always been very special to me, and I am famous for my lack of interviews. Please understand this policy will continue. End quote. About 24 hours after releasing the statement, Freddie passed away at the age of 45. According to his wishes, Freddie was cremated and his ashes were given only to Mary. She buried them in an undisclosed location and has said that she will never reveal where she is buried. During his life, Freddie donated much of his wealth to charity, but he left 50% of everything else that he had, including his house, to marry. He always said that he thought of them as basically married. Any comments over there?
0: It's just so tragic. Yep. The AIDS pandemic was just tragic.
1: After his death, the rest of the band stayed pretty quiet. Brian released his second solo album, the first one released ten years earlier. Roger did some work with another band that he had been playing with for the past five or so years, and John had essentially retired. They got back together in 1994 to record backing vocals to some songs that Freddie had recorded before his death, which resulted in an album in 1995 called Made in Heaven that sold really well. Which, you know, you would expect. Queen stayed quiet after that. They released a few box sets and greatest hits albums, but nothing new. In 2005, Brian May and Roger Taylor revived the Queen name to do a few shows with their friend Paul Rogers, but they were billed as Queen plus Paul Rogers. John Deacon remained retired and didn't join them. They eventually released an album with Paul that had mixed reviews, which Paul left in 2009 after that. They appeared on a few television shows, including playing with Adam Lambert on American Idol. So
0: so cool. (laughs) Like, (laughs) that happened. That's just wild. In
1: 2014, they played a large tour and released another compilation album. Over the next few years, they stayed active, playing shows mostly with Adam, Adam Lambert. So cool. As Freddie once promised Australia, Queen remained one of the biggest bands of all time. They released 18 number one singles, 18 number one albums, and 10 number one DVDs worldwide, which is absurd numbers. Their albums have spent a total of 1,322 weeks, or 26 years, on the charts, which is more time than any other act, including the Beatles. Their greatest hits album was the best-selling album in UK chart history, beating Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band by 600,000. Wow. So not even, like, barely. Like, they crushed them. Yeah. They have several songs and band members in various halls of fame. Basically whatever one they can be in they're in.
0: Right, yeah.
1: When Forbes, writing for Forbes, Steve Bolton said, quote, Musicians have been saying for decades, Queen are in the pantheon of all-time greats. In the countless interviews I have done over the years, they have been name-checked by numerous superstars. What is most impressive, though, is the diversity of artists that they've influenced. Why Queen were able to cut across such an incredibly wide range of musicians is easy to see. They are one of the most versatile bands that rock has ever had. Yep. End quote. Brian May continued his scientific career. In the 70s, he authored two peer-reviewed research papers. In 2007, he earned his PhD, PhD studying reflected light from interplanary dust. In the 80s and the 90s, he struggled heavily with depression to the point of contemplating suicide for reasons having to do with his troubled first marriage, his perceived failure as a husband and a father, and his own father, Harold's death, mm-hmm. and Freddie Mercury's illness and death. Yeah, He is a big-time animal rights activist, and he's the founder of Asteroid Day which is aimed at raising awareness on how to protect the Earth from asteroids. Along with performing with Queen, Roger Taylor has continued his solo career and oversees a few other Queen-adjacent projects, including producing the Queen Extravaganza, which is a Queen tribute act. Mm -hmm. John Deacon, since since recording a Freddie tribute song in 1997, has remained retired from music. He said after Freddie's death, quote, As far as we are concerned, this is it. There's no point carrying on. It is impossible to replace Freddy.
0: Uh, Like, it must be so weird to transition from being just that iconic and that, like, into your craft. And just, like, producing absolute masterpieces and then going to, like, oh, well, how are you supposed to carry that on but different?
1: Yeah. Also, John was always the quiet one. Like, he was always kind of, like, the more reserved. And, like, so it's not surprising to me that once it ended, he was like, I'm done. I'm stepping away from everything. Like, that doesn't surprise me at all. He, John has not appeared on any of the projects that Brian and Roger have put together. He didn't even attend their induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2001. He lives in London with his wife, whom he married in 1975, and has six children. It's said that he has had basically no contact with the other two guys in the past 10 years. Brian said about that, quote, it's his choice. He doesn't contact us. John was quite delicate all along. End quote. Hmm. And that's, that's Queen. Very briefly, there's probably a lot more that we could have covered with Queen. But... Good
0: thing there's a movie. Yeah. And so much else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Final thoughts on Queen.
0: responded to COVID in the past few years really shed some light on the lack of a response to AIDS and it sucks even more like I literally was just sitting here being like what like it wasn't that long ago granted we have so much more medical technology now but like are you kidding me it just makes it just makes me mad and sad that's fair. The music phenomenal, <laughs> the artistry phenomenal, the people iconic, <laughs> the work ethic insane.
1: Yeah. Well, we we have another one with a similarly insane work ethic coming up, and Elton John. We're nice. We're going to do soft rock, and then Elton John, and then Billy, who had a good work ethic until about 1993. You know, <laughs> When he was like, I'm done.
0: Yeah, and now know, just
1: plays a few shows, which is like, yeah, do it. Who cares?
0: That's why you work so hard. You don't work so hard to continue to work so hard yeah. when you don't feel like doing yeah. it. <laughs> he
1: just like does what he wants to do now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> plays Madison Square Garden, a few other shows, and that's all oh, he really God. cares about.
0: I'm really excited.
1: It's going to be a good one. All right. Anything else to add before we head out of here? I
0: don't want to leave because can I... Need to go work out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Goodbye. Goodbye, people.